Island, um, and you're in the mood to geocache, uh, there's a small geocache there, and the exact coordinates are, are difficult to come by, but it's small. You really have to look for it. It's a 282-foot-long Russian submarine. Um, and so it's this nuclear submarine that was used in the USSR during the Cold War, etc. And uh, then it, it fell out of use um, because of the end of the Cold War, and it sort of bounced around the country quite a bit. It was in a Harrison Ford movie. Um, this guy in Finland bought it because he wanted to make it into a restaurant, and that didn't work. And it was in Florida for a while, and then for some reason they brought it up to Rhode Island. And all the geocaching website says it's somewhere in Rhode Island. So, um, again, uh, if you can go to, and what it is called, um, let me bring up the name here just a second. It is called the Juliet 484. So, if you are in Rhode Island and you feel the itch to geocache, look for the Juliet 484 Soviet submarine. Send me a picture of it, and again, I will send you a gift card to the uh, low-end chain restaurant of your choice. Um, nothing uh, below Wendy's, nothing above Red Robin. That's a deal I try to keep with my listeners. So, welcome to Geocaching Scripture. This is Josh coming at you from the Blanket Fort, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about what Geocaching Scripture is. Geocaching, again, is this rarefied sport hobby of looking for these little treasures of... Um, more like treasure hunting than anything else. You're really just looking for, uh, usually it's a can with something in it, like a logbook to say you were there and maybe a trinket or something like that. But the fun is in the finding. Um, apparently, sometimes it can be a 282-foot-long submarine, and that's just part of the game. So that's geocaching. And, and to me, it, it works as a metaphor for the way I interact with Scripture as I get older, um, is that I've... I've been through it a lot. I've worked through it a lot. I've read it a lot. Um, my earliest memories are in VeggieTales. Um, it's very strange um, to have grown up this far within the church. And so when I go back to scripture, it's, it's sort of well-worn. But what I've found are these little tricks of language and theology and cultural situation that I call geocaches. And it's helped me to see the dimension in scripture that's already there. And so I've had a very patient guest who's been watching me do this whole monologue, and here he is. This is Pastor Dan Hintz. Hello, Dan. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm grand like a baby piano. How are you? Wow. You prepped that, didn't you? I, that's, that's, a, that's an old standby. Yeah. Man, I'm peachy keen. I'm, I'm excited to be on Geocaching Scripture. I'm excited to have you, man. Um, Dan is um, a formidably smart person who went to um, uh, Regent South, which is uh, what we call Fuller Seminary in L.A. Proudly, man, proudly. Yes, and he's, he's an Old Testament scholar, um, and, um, and he, used to, he used to tutor Tim Mackey in Hebrew, and he, he did a lot of things. Um, no, dude, like, when, so like I, I, was, I was fortunate to sit in a room with Tim Mackey every once in a while, but like I was an undergraduate in like a doctoral program, and so... Like they had a special little carpet square for me to sit on, and I would sit in the corner <laughs> and just kind of watch the big boys play. So. You close, close your kennel. Close the door <laughs> in your kennel, Daniel. Yes. Uh, so, yes, something like that. Anyway, Dan's going to be in here, and he's going to talk to us about a geocache that is special to him, and we're going to go ahead and do it.
yeah. talk to us about church history. Um, <laughs> yes, a, a lot of us have the have. You may be surprised to know this, but something happened between the Bible and your life as a Christian, which is, is there's actually quite a lot of church quite history. A lot of church history, absolutely. Um, and uh, and and it and it's the Bible itself covers a period. Well, the New Testament at least covers a very small period in history, and church history covers twenty times that. And oh yeah, I mean it's 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 really easy to forget that like. Essentially, church history covers like the birth of Jesus, let's say 3 AD, to, I mean, let's say that the last book written is uh, either the book of Revelation or the Gospel of John somewhere in what, late 90s, early 100s. And so you're really only talking about 100 years if you think about like your New Testament history. And so there's way more church history than there is New Testament history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and not all of it is, is um, very pretty. No, um, not actually. That that's <laughs> yeah. That, that's something Christians have to become really familiar with. Is that there's a lot of gnarly church history that we have to be willing to own up to, saying like, yeah, that was not a good phase. But luckily enough, we have a savior who's willing to forgive us of a lot of our idiotic ideas. Yes, right. But there's also a lot of encouragement to be had from church history, and so like uh, like you have something like in Hebrews 11 where the author tells us. That there's this like great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on to faith. That great cloud of witnesses aren't just like biblical characters. They're also people in history who are really good at following Jesus and really smart at understanding who God is. And we can, in my mind, we can be just as inspired by them as we can by characters in the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think of church history like it, it has a, a certain three-dimensionality that we forget about about theology um, and these church yeah. history characters who were who were um, on one hand um, very very wise and very very holy and very very kind and very loving, but also on the other hand like kind of like hustlers and kind of like oh dude just had totally to keep moving you know and uh, yeah and they had to just like figure it out and think on their feet constantly um, and and. Uh, and there were fights, and there were battles, and there was all kinds of uh, just like the, the the history of the church is is not is not a veggie tale. Okay. No, it's definitely not a, a veggie tale, and we shouldn't even try to make it a veggie tale because if we do, we like cut ourselves out from under un, underneath ourselves. Like again, there, there's an aspect of church history that's messy, and we need to embrace it because God's grace is big enough to embrace it, and so we can learn from some of the messy stuff but then embrace some of the character of faith who are absolutely inspiring. And so today we're going to talk about uh, like a very small sliver of church history that is really applicable to what we're going through right now with the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. And so we're going to just take a small look at uh, pandemics in the first few hundred years of church history and understand how the church's response can perhaps influence our response. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. So let, let's just, uh, as we start, let's just kind of first define some of the, the terms that we're talking about. And so we're going to look at two specific plagues that went through, I mean, kind of the Mediterranean rim. We're going to look especially at the city of Rome. And so we're going to look at the, what's called the uh, Antonine plague, which is like 160s AD 
And then we're going to look at the plague of Cyprian, which is like 250s AD. And we're going to look at the Christian response to it in the context of pagan society where people didn't know what to do with it. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's so refreshing to see Christians not losing their head and pressing into the, the call to, to love each other. And that's exactly what Christians did in the first few centuries. And in my mind, and there are other authors who uh, like agree with this, is that like one of the main, uh, one of the main uh, propellants of church growth, especially in the first few centuries of the church, was were, were these plagues, like mm-hmm. where everyone else was panicking, Christians were displaying the type of virtue that no one knew was possible, mm-hmm. and that now that, that that after the fact that then became the like the burning question in people's mind is like w- what did these people have going for them that they were able to love the way they did and be as generous as they were, despite the fact that the world, the world seemed to be falling apart. Uh, And so again, there's, there's lots of really good stuff for us as 21st century Jesus followers that we can garner from the first few centuries of the church. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So let look, so, so we have the, the, these two plagues that go through again, the Mediterranean basin, we're going to look at Rome in specific. And so you have the Antonine plague and then the plague of Cyprian, and so the first thing we should just kind of get our head around is just the mortality rate. And so like there's lots of different estimates as to what the mortality rate on these, these pandemics were. Uh, on the high side, you have like 25%. On the low side, you have like 5 to 7%. Scholars disagree. Um, you know, there are historians like Cassius Deal who have a, a death rate of somewhere around 5 million people in the Roman Empire, which is just a, I mean, it's like, a, a third of the Roman Empire at that point in time. Yeah, considering huge the population at the time, that's a huge number. That's yeah, huge number. but I think what you end up finding when you compare him with other historians is you, you find these it was really bad. It was probably under 5%. And so I, I honestly think you could compare some of these pandemics to uh, a slightly worse variation of COVID-19. Um, and so like COVID-19 has what, 3 to 3.5% three mortality rate, which is horrible but we have modern medicine we have modern hygiene we have the capacity for mass communication we're able to shut down uh transport between communities and between states um none of that existed in the roman empire and so just imagine like you're in rome and you're a slave because if you're in rome chances are you're a slave that's like at least half the population and everybody did. you have little no access to clean water you're living on top of each other you have little to no access to to hygiene um, and so, uh, even, even something with, a, a relatively small mortality rate, let's say one to 2% into, by today's standards. I mean, in, in the first few centuries, if you're living in Rome in that kind of scenario, like that would, that would run like in a, in a horrific way. And that's exactly what happened. And so Rome probably, I think a good estimate is somewhere around like 12 to 18% of people would have died from these pandemics, which is again, a huge segment of the population. Yeah. Um, but what's, what's most interesting about it, especially when you look at it from the vantage of church history is the, the two different um, reactions to these pandemics. And so you have the Christian reaction, but then you have the pagan reaction. Uh, and so we, we know like very uh, securely from, from historians like uh, Thucydides who wrote this, 
epic, huge history on the Peloponnesian War, but he talked about uh, the first pandemic that went through Rome. And so he, he records that the, the doctors in Rome at this point in time, and it's rudimental medicine, but it's still some medicine. And he's like, the doctors were quite incapable of actually caring for this disease on any level. And so what, what you see uh, is that doctors in Rome, once the, once the pandemic hit, they just left. Like they just, they just went away. <laughs> they just, like, so for instance, like the famous Roman doctor Galen, like how did he survive the Antonine plague? Like he just retired and he left for his country home. Like, like he was, he just was gone. He went to his condo <laughs> up north. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and, and so you have large scale panic. Like doctors aren't able to uh, solve the pandemic. And so you have like, so the only people with access to doctors are people who are rich. And so rich people can't get the help they need. And so doctors leave, rich people leave, everyone just leaves the city. And what you have are uh, a, like a, a, a weird arrangement of slaves and, and, and poorer folk. There isn't really a middle class uh, and they don't have doctors appeal to, to appeal to. They really only have the gods to appeal to. And so uh, Thucydides actually talks about in, in, in fairly good detail like what people were doing. And so they were going to the temples and they were sacrificing and they were praying to the gods. They were going to different oracles and trying to get words of wisdom for how to combat the pandemic. And nothing, nothing worked. But I think this is like it's 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 that picture of the pagan world going to the gods and offering prayer and then sacrifice. And I think gives us a really interesting vantage place to understand the christian response because for the pagan mind now how do you how like, do you how do you define the word pagan in this context uh you know pagan is i don't say that in a, in a demeaning way at all that's just like no. yeah. um that's just like i would call that like rural religious belief which is a, a conglomeration of lots of different ideas with some fairly level like a commonality between them Oh, you're the God, you're lucky the gods are going to respond to you. Um, and so, I mean, a, a, a pagan would be defined as anyone from someone worshiping Zeus to someone worshiping Aphrodite. Um, yeah, like that, that's a general Greek pagan. And again, I, I don't say that in a demeaning way at, at all. And so if you're not of the Christian, uh, the Christian cut, and let's say you do identify with neo-pagan movements, like I'm not, I'm not saying that as a demeaning term. That's just the, the, the scholarly term for someone who believes in like rural general religious practice. So. Right, right. So it would have been it would have been maybe not the word they they used for themselves, but it no. it's not meant it's just a label. Yeah, it's it's correct. It's, it's it's just it's just a label. You you could call it like popular folk religion. Okay. Okay. So this is not Socrates and Plato talking about the gods. This was this was more like the oh no this this is this belief. is this is more boots on boots on the grounds yeah this is not Aristotle uh, this is not Socrates this is not Plato thinking about the Platonic ideal this is this is this has much more connection with I have an immediate material need I need to appeal to the gods to meet this material need right. I don't have rain you know I'm, I'm my my wife isn't able to have children. Uh, there's a war that's happening. I need to appeal to the gods. So the the crux of the issue with like let, let's say just popular folk religion in the first few centuries of the Roman Empire is getting your immediate needs met. And so uh, you don't have rain, you don't have children. There's a war coming. There's 
a pandemic that's wiping through your city and you want to uh, appeal to the gods to have some sort of met. And what's really in number about so pagan and you could say popular folk religion is that the gods didn't really ever put like any sort of ethical demands on you to be kind to your brother or sister in Zeus or anything like that. Like there, there were, there were zero ethical commands placed on any, anyone in, 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 let's say first and second century pagan, pagan religion. And like that, that comes, that that's really important to remember when we look at the different responses to these different pandemics. So if you are a, a pagan and a pandemic's coming through your city and you, you want help, you appeal to the gods. And so like, where do you find the presence of God? Like you, you find the presence of God in the temple as you offer prayer and sacrifice. And you just, you put your sacrifice out there, hoping that whatever deity you're offering it to is going to respond favorably to your, to your sacrifice. But like, that's where the presence of God is. Christians, had an entirely different idea of where the presence of God is or where the blessing of God is. And so, for instance, during that second plague, the plague of Cyprian in, like the, again, the 250s or 260s AD, this is, this is what a church leader named uh, Dionysius writes. He says this, uh, Many Christian brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their needs, and ministering to them in Christ. Where do Christians get the strength to have that kind of response when doctors like Galen are like running for the hills and retiring early in order to get out of the city because there's no solution for the pandemic? And it all has to it all comes down to this question of where where do you find the presence of God? Pagans found it by offering sacrifices, but Christians found it in caring for each other. Like that, that's where the presence of God really exists in the giving and receiving of self-giving love. And in my mind, that, 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 that the best challenge for us as 21st century Christians, like mm-hmm. this, the, the first, second, and third century Christians who walked into pandemic trusting Christ because they knew that in caring for the sick, Christ was present with them. Like that's like in, in my mind, that just preached the gospel in beautiful ways. And again, just so again, just remember that like, if you're, if you're a, a pagan, like, of course you're scared. Like death is horrible. Hades is horrible. Like the gods are as scared of Hades as you are. Like as a Christian, like Christ has gone through death. He has mastered death and he invites you into it not as an act of dying, but as an act of stepping into life. And so you have Christians with this entirely different imaginative landscape about what reality looks like. And when people saw it, they were absolutely astounded. Christians were able to show type the type of character that was otherwise unheard of in the ancient world. And so Christians became these emblems of virtue, uh, which is, again, something that we get to be challenged by as 21st century followers of Jesus. Like, how are we in the COVID-19 era, like, embracing the type of virtue that's going to leave people with their with their jaw on the floor because no one loves like that and no one is generous like that? In my mind, like, that's, like, there is fertile room for reflection 
as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in the second century who just, they mastered love and they, they, they were generous with their, with their time and their resources. Like we, we have a lot to learn from them. So what would you say, I think, the, the question being in my mind, or one of the questions is, uh, what would you say to these, these groups that are, that are um, meeting despite social isolation laws um, and you know, then the media likes to get like, they like to bring out the biggest doofuses they can find. They're like, totally. who here is crazy? We'll talk to them. Um, but people that are saying, you know, I'm, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. I don't need any of the social distancing, anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that like, they're not acting in wisdom. It's probably the kindest way I can say it. Um, so we're not, you know, second century uh, you know, pagans or Christians who have no understanding of modern medicine or microbial reality or viruses or, you know, the importance of washing your hands. Like, we, knowing what we know, it's ethically irresponsible not to be doing our best to protect those who are most vulnerable, um, even just in the church, if not in the city at large. And so, I mean, there's a, I mean, I, I, if you look at church demographics, I, there are fewer and fewer young people and more and more old people. Who are the people who are most affected by COVID-19? They're clearly the older demographics. And so, yeah. like, we have an ethical obligation to protect those in our church. And so, m- meeting together as a congregation, while it's sad not to be able to be encouraged by the full body of Christ, like, given what we know, it's the only responsible thing to do. Right, right. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And I think I think it's important to draw the distinction to say, you know, there there's no thought that people in in uh, outside of the Christian culture at the time, although they didn't have an ethical component to their um, religious practice, were not ethical people. These are still ethical people, good people, loving people. Oh yeah. All sorts so again, so it's it's not like it's not that virtue didn't exist before Christianity. It's not that courage didn't exist before Christianity. It's given times of crisis in which in which you understand how deep does my ethic really go, hmm. and again, so during these times of pandemic, like people weren't just isolating themselves. If a family member were to get the disease, like they would be kicked out of the house, like just left on the street. And so, like we we know historically for a fact that like uh, burial procedures in the ancient world were like one one of the most important things you could do. Like that's like that's it was huge in terms of bestowing respect upon a, a loved one who's passed away, and we know that people were just left for dead because and left for dead in the streets and not buried because people were afraid of contracting the disease, and so like pagans were very ethical people. They they weren't immoral necessarily. It's not that virtue didn't exist before then. It's that when push came to shove, their ethic didn't go deep enough to be able to enable them to love even when it was really, really, really costly. And again, just put yourself in their shoes. Of course, that's the way they thought. Like the gods were as scared of Hades as they were. Like you don't, you don't come back from there. Like it's like this murky, shadowy place of existence. And that, that's, right. that's it. That's the rest of your life. And so death was something to be feared. Like only, only Christians had this radically different understanding of life and death that because of what Christ has done, right, dying the death that we should have died, going through death for us and then coming out alive on the other side and inviting us into that life. Only Christians, because they had that perspective, 
were able to walk into situations that would have scared the pants off of anyone else. And they were able to keep their cool because they knew that death, while it's painful, it's not the end of the story. And so I, I think this is actually a really important theological point that what they believed about the resurrection actually played itself out in terms of practical Christian ethic. And I think that has a lot to do with, again, the Christian ethic that we see today. Like a lot of what Christians believe about the resurrection today, about and the way we treat each other when the stakes get high. And again, so it's COVID-19 and the stakes are very high. And so how we respond communicates a lot about what we actually believe about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. If he has died for us, and if he has come out alive on the backside and then invites us into that life, then we, like that, that becomes a, how would you say it? That, that becomes a, a well of imaginative inspiration for us to step into having totally different resources to be able to love people. So... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> is Mark Marin, who's a he's an interesting comedian, um, <clears throat> and and he he has all these interesting insights. But one of the one of the things he said, first of all, he said he said uh, I don't know if God exists, and I just don't care anymore. That's his that's his <laughs> like outlook. Um, and then and then at one point no. he sort of like looks at the audience. He says, "But you know, there are no atheist soup kitchens." Honestly, <laughs> which, which I thought was an interesting point, and and that is never to say that atheists are not ethical people. I'm sure he's an ethical person. But, yeah, to totally, absolutely. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't fit into the overall worldview. Yeah, and so if you want to read someone on that very topic right there, there's a guy named David Bentley Hart, who's a Greek Orthodox thinker and philosopher, hmm. but he's he's incredible at at um, uh, reducing our current situation and the conflict between the secular and the sacred and what history might look like as we become increasingly a, a, a secular culture. And so his essential argument is this, is that like atheists born 30 or 40 years ago, like they were really, really virtuous people because like the Judeo-Christian ethic was still very strong in culture. But as that begins to wane, his question is this, he's like, it has yet to be seen if secularization can produce the type of virtue that the Judeo-Christian ethic has been able to produce. And he's like, it's a historical experiment that we're living through right now. And so atheists 40 or 50 years ago might've been very, very ethical, but you're, you're right in saying it's not a part of their, their like philosophical or ethical trajectory. And so who know who knows where culture may go? 80, let's say 80 years from now, right. when you don't have that strong Judeo-Christian ethic pulling people back into a a grounded ethic of love, let's say. Right, right. Will the, will the moral residue kind of remain? Correct. Yes, after, that's exactly right. After the agent is gone. And and that's that's one of those difficult questions, and, and that's why we're here, is to ask questions. No, so, absolutely. Yeah. And so I would say that as, as Christians... Um, the biggest challenge for us is to always be reminded of the resurrection. Like if Easter is true, if Jesus has come out on the backside of death, conquering it and then giving that same life to us, then we have nothing to fear. Even though we might die, 
Like we have absolutely nothing to fear. And the great cloud of witnesses that we have in our Christian Christian brothers and sisters from the first and second century show us that reality. Like we remember them today and we're still in awe of them today precisely because they embraced the reality that they might die and they they didn't hold their lives so closely that they would run from that reality. And the reason they didn't do that was because they knew that Christ was with them through it. No pagan had that kind of philosophical or religious resource in their back pocket. Christians do then and Christians do today. And it has yet to be seen what we're going to do with that. So, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. That, I think I think that's a lot to think about and a lot to think about how um, it's, it's amazing how people think that think, think so greatly about the next world are the people yeah. who often do the work within this world. Absolutely. Um, and so there's not, yeah. again, so you, you have the, uh, what is it saying? Like you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly use. Right. Like, I don't find that to be true. The people who are most heavenly minded are the people who are most invested in this world because like God has designed this as a good world and he's committed to the goodness of this world and he's going to redeem it someday. And so when you're heavenly minded, you're super invested in this world. Awesome. Okay. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we will, we will continue to do this. I'm going to start having some guests on. I, I'm, I'll I'll have Dan on again if I can negotiate his manager to bring his cost down. <laughs> um, you can pay me in Burger King gift cards. Burger King gift cards. I got it. I got, I have one on the fridge right now. Um, my, my son got it for reading a lot of books for kindergarten, but I think I can take it from him. So, um, but that is, that is where we are at the moment, but I will start having some guests on because it's just a lot of fun. So anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Wash your hands. Pax Humana. Cheers. Cheers.